and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to the dispatch.com to uh, find out what the number 42 really means. Um, also, you can go to what's next event.com to find out more about our big uh, um, what's next event. Um, we're solidifying things. We've got a lot of great people on, on um, in the queue and uh, we really think it's going to be an important event. So that's what's next event.com. It'll be November nine and 10. Uh, today's episode, by the way, is uh, sponsored by our friends at donors trust and at the Acton line more about them in a little bit. And so for the, it's not the penultimate. It is no, it is. Well, it's either the penultimate or the anti-penultimate episode of The Remnant. Uh, we decided to go to the well and have uh, somebody who's who's always good podcasting, um, and an old friend of mine, and uh, my one of the uh, uh, one third of the triumvirate that makes the Glop podcast, which everybody should subscribe to, and literally seventy percent of the four-person commentary podcast. <laughs> Uh, we have the editor-in-chief of Commentary Magazine and former opinion editor of the New York Post, co-founder of the Weekly Standard, and um, author of various books, which we won't discuss at this time, uh, <laughs> my friend uh, John Pedorts. John, welcome back to The Remnant. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. I know I haven't been on 77 times like <clears throat> Vin Canato, but um, you know, I'm, I'm honored to make a return appearance. Well, you know, in my... Vin actually knows something about something very specific and is one of the world's great experts on it. So I understand why you would want to talk to him more than me, even though I'm just sitting here crying that I'm not on more often. Yeah, well, I mean, I've only been on the commentary podcast once. And moreover, since we do this other podcast thing all the time, sort of like the the bar, that the bowling alley that Norm and Cheers goes to when he's not, you know, because he has a life. <laughs> I just think it's kind of weird to inflict a lot yes. more pod on my listeners um, because my listeners know where to find a lot of John Pedorts if they want it. But since, since you brought up our friend Vin Canato's expertise and yes. um, since you know a thing or two, you are actually uh, a bit of a polymath about uh, – can you be a bit of a polymath? You're a polymath about many things, but one of the areas where you um, can do a deep, deep dive, and since it matters so much in this election – Matters more than ever before. Wither the Jewish vote, John. <laughs> How will the Jews vote? The Jews will vote as the Jews have been voting, I think, pretty much since 1996. In 1992, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, the Jewish vote cratered for George H.W. Bush. Got 11 or 12 percent of the Jewish vote. It rose again to around 24, 25 percent. Basically has been locked there for uh, 25 years, and I see no reason to believe that that this year will be any different. So um, uh, it, it should be better in theory because Trump has been, you know, among the best friends Israel has ever had. But the uh, I think basically the single issue Israel voter in the Jewish community probably constitutes about 24, 25 percent of the Jewish community, and so therefore there is there is Trump. 
Well, this this raises actually a, a an interesting point that I'm sure you run into more than I do. Um, there are there are a large number of either certainly pro-Israel, but also sort of philo-Semitic, non-Jewish conservatives in the Republican Party. But they have this weird thing where if if it was coming from a left-winger, you would call it some sort of anti-Semitism, certainly anti-Zionism, where they will ask, why aren't the Jews voting more Republican given how much better the Republicans are on Israel? And we have to explain to them that Jews I mean, would that, from at least from our perspective, would that Jews only voted on the Israel <laughs> right. question, right? right? But they don't. And, um, you know. It makes perfect sense to me. For a, a non-Jewish voter, the Jewish issue is Israel. There is no Jewish issue in the United States. Now, I mean, in the last couple of years, with uh, the rise in uh, acts of, you know, violent acts of anti-Semitism, uh, which have gotten more uh, spectacular in their own ways, like the like the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh and some of these uh, beatings and assaults in Brooklyn um, and the shoot-up of a kosher uh, grocery in Jersey City and the shoot-up of a house in, in, uh, of a... Of a ultra-Orthodox Jewish house in, in Muncie, New York. Um, these are kind of spectacular events. Um, and so maybe there is a mild anti-Semitism issue to be dealt with inside the United States. But for a non-Jewish voter, Jews, there are no Jewish issues. So Israel is the Jewish issue for a non-Jewish voter. It is, I am a supporter of the Jewish state. Jews should therefore mutatis mutandis be supporters of the Jewish state just like I am. And therefore, this should be the focus of their their concern. But um, you know, uh, Jewish voters who, of course, make up a very, very you know less than they make up two percent of the population. Let's say because they are probably more likely to vote than other people. Maybe they make up two and a half percent of the electorate, so they're they're a little more disproportionate. In 1950, they made up four percent of the population of the United States, and actually were a significant vote in new york state like a mm -hmm. kind of swing vote in in new york state where they made up jews made up 31 percent of the population of the city of new york in the 1940s and so uh though new york wasn't that swingy a state it certainly had a serious liberal republican wing uh jews were often part of the liberal republican wing because they were they didn't like democratic associations with segregationists and southern racists and so there was a Jewish vote that was kind of up for grabs and also was significant. And now there is basically no Jewish vote that is going to turn the tide anywhere, except in incredibly close elections in some, in some congressional districts, maybe. And under those circumstances, Jews matter electorally largely because they are, uh, we tend to be uh, largely, fi wildly financially successful. Uh, disproportionately compared to other people, and so Jews are donors. Jews are are are, are uh, wildly disproportionate donors to political causes. By the way, on on both sides, the largest right. single donor, the two largest single donors in American politics are Michael Bloomberg and Sheldon Adelson. Both of them Jewish men. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, this is and a very sexy. significant in fact in in American politics. Oh, it, you know, so sexy. 
I mean, Adelson sport, Adelson drives that jazzy like you have really never seen a person <laughs> drive a jazzy before. Um, so one of the things that uh, John Bedortz and I share is um, an common heritage of growing up watching New York City local television growing up. And uh, we could talk about the odd couple <laughs> for quite a while, but we're not going to do that. But the only reason I bring it up right now rather than later, because we have some pop culture questions that we have to go through, uh, Mr. Bedorz, but um, is that, I don't know, if, do you remember there was, around the time of Wonderama, there was a public service ad that ran all the time. I believe it wasn't just on Channel 5, but it was like on all the local stations. And it had this kid and um, I think his grandpa and they were fishing. And, uh, but it might've been his dad and the kid, if we can find the audio, we'll actually try to put it in here. And the, the, the adult says to the kid, you know, who's Timmy? And the kid says, Timmy's my Jewish friend. And then the dad says, uh, that's prejudiced because he's just your friend and it shouldn't matter that he was Jewish. And I always thought about this as this, this very weird thing to be broadcasting in New York City. <laughs> the, one of the few places where you know this is like first of all fishing <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, you know but yeah. anyway i only bring this up because it comes to mind i did not bring you on here as my jewish friend um well, just to talk you. about the jews um thank, thank thank you so much so you 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 volive in you bring on for for that purpose anyway and I, look i mean i have a i'm just that, kidding i got i got i got, got tevi for that too tevi did jewish outreach for the bush administration you know, Te- I mean, Tevi is Tevi. Tevi. They retired the Jewish. They retired the Jewish cap. They they hung. Tevi is in the Jewish. <laughs> you know, his number is in the rafters at the Jewish Madison Square Garden. Tevi Troy. Um. So we have but what, one last thing on 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 the Hebraics. I want to um, mention one thing though about the commercials. Yes. I just want to yes. say that one of the great tragedies of our time is, of course, the sort of the decline of local television and the decline of the local television commercial. Uh, which was a, a feature of American culture for, you know, 50 years until everything got professionalized and nationalized and all that. But the great commercial from my youth, which I, cause I'm a few years older than you, you might even have missed was the New York city commercial to tell kids to cross at the traffic light, mm, which had a bell. jingle, had a jingle that went like this don't cross the street in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the block, which (laughs) is a terrible jingle, except I remember it. It's almost 60 years later and I remember it, you know, as though it were yesterday. So maybe it's not such a terrible jingle to not rhyme, to have no meter, to have not a particularly memorable tune, but it, it was so, it's so specific. Like this is the thing, like specific messaging really can get into your head it's like don't cross the street in the middle of the block obviously and you know this is like a public service campaign that people right. must have spent millions of dollars on because it must have been a big public safety issue back when people were concerned about such things now of course they're only concerned about you know global warming but that might have saved lives. How many lives might have been, untold lives might have been saved from that messaging? It probably did. And, and who knows how many, you know, uh, 
pogroms were forestalled for, by that quiet message about prejudice as well. I have still stuck in my head, and every now and then I will just start muttering like I need to up my dosage. Um, Carvel, <laughs> ice cream, car, and it's the, that you remember those commercials, the slowest moving jingles for anything aimed at kids ever. Um, and uh, if you that's are always our stuck age, in my head. Hmm? If you are our age and you, f- if you're our age, you can fall down a rabbit hole on YouTube. There are yeah. people, I don't know who these people are, they had like early. VCRs, like early 70s VCRs or something like that. And so they taped programming and then they somehow edit it down and you can find commer- you can find a broadcast from 1973 where they just splice it together and it's only the commercials of your on your local station that's in New York and all sorts of places. And um, it is unbelievable how cheesy oh, I know. Yeah. they were. And 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 charming as a result of their cheesiness like there was a kind of ingenuousness to it before you know now you can make a an iMovie trailer on your phone if you're nine years old that looks almost as though it's the trailer you see in a movie theater yeah like that that is how professionalized everything has become and you know a good car dealership ad <laughs> with the guy and his and his and his wife, or so or, you know, or driving school or something like that, and you you get a sense of a kind of a like a sort of slower, simpler country that we're never going to get back to. I yeah, mean, the, maybe the we don't address, need to. But the address for Coronet Home Furnishings at eleven eleven Old Country Road is <laughs> yes. permanently. I mean, I, I wonder how much important information about things has been forgotten to keep that on my hard drive that's <laughs> yeah, terrible it's terrible all right so we got to do some punditry because yeah. the election's in like five days right over as of last night 75 million people had voted um why don't you give your lay of the land about where you see the election right now um if joe biden doesn't win uh, then all of American social science will have been invalidated. Now, maybe that's a good thing. Like, I, I don't like a lot of American social science. I don't like this notion that, you know, you understand things through the data, and it's all the data, this kind of fetishization of data and the fetishization of numbers. And I notice that the soothsayers who interpret the data are always saying, look, I mean, the data just tell you as much as they can tell you. And it's like, you know, if there's a 10% chance that Trump could look, Things that are to have a 10% chance win all the time. Well, actually, they don't. Like, they only win <laughs> one out of 10 times. That's actually not a lot of times, right? I, I mean, so, in fact, that's a rare thing that happens if, you, if, if it's one out of 10 times. Um, so uh, what I am looking for in this, is, uh, this election is either a sort of validation of, of, of the way in which we uh, try to understand how things are working in Medius race before there are votes and before there are things like that. Um, because if it's validated, then it's validated. And every conversation that we have over the course of the years where we say, well, Trump is really unpopular or, you know, this bill is unpopular or that's unpopular or something like that, you're now really going to be able to say, I just don't know that we can take these surveys and accept them at, at face value or, ta- or, or understand that they're measuring anything real. So I, I don't suspect that's going to happen. I think when you have 
dozens at hundreds and if you go look at the real clear politics average of the sort of head to head Biden versus Trump uh you know and uh, in real clear politics they have uh Biden numbers where Biden is in positive territory in blue and Trump numbers in red and you go from right now at the end of October down to March and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of maybe not 100 like the last time i counted there were 109 and that was like Two months ago, so there are probably now 150 or something like that, and there are two numbers in red. Maybe it's now five numbers in red because of Rasmussen reports somehow mystically being eight points different right. from the general average. But um, I mean, to call that overwhelming is 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 not even to define overwhelming properly. And so I think that people who think that Trump has a path, he has a path because he had a path before. Um, I don't think that you can look at this and say that, uh, if someone put a gun to your head and made you bet a thousand dollars, you would be insane to bet on Trump. You would be right. insane. I, I, I will defend the, I mean, I, you make a good point that things that happen one in 10 times tend, tend to happen only 10% of the time. And I, I yeah. agree with that point. I think the place where people get, I mean, it's funny when you talk to pollsters, I mean, one of the reasons why um, a lot of them are really loath to do horse race polling is that, like, if you're doing corporate messaging, the margin of error doesn't really matter, right? If you if you, if you find out that seventy eight percent of people like nougat, you know, <laughs> and it turns out that in reality it's only seventy five, who gives a rat's ass, right? That's but, fake news. There is no way that nougat is that popular. <laughs> I refuse. That's fake news. But so the problem is, is that you only have a presidential election every four years. And that margin of error is the difference between winning and losing. And so like lots of things that happen only 10% of the time happen only 10% of the time. Still seems like they happen a lot when that thing happens a lot, right? I mean, 10% of people buy the pretzel M&Ms. but. 100,000 people buy them every single day. And so it's like people do buy pretzel yeah. M&Ms all the time. But we only have one election every four years. And so people think that like, it, it just, it, it, I, I think it goes to sort of our natural innumeracy about not understanding the rapidity of things um, right. or the, the, the interval or whatever um, the right term is. Right. But um, it just occurred to me and I just figured, I can't write a column about this, but I'm sure you've looked at these numbers of, uh, and I, it dawned on me that they're definitely thrown off by California, but the, the partisan breakdown of who's voted early and who hasn't. And also there's the polling that says Democrats are voting early and Republicans are waiting for election day. If there's bad weather, I mean, legitimately bad weather in, you know, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, or particularly Northern Florida, you know, um, or even in, in Texas, and something like 70% of Republicans are waiting till election day. Mm -hmm. You could actually see, I mean, I, I'm still skeptical about Texas flipping, but yeah. bad weather could cause Texas to flip in a heartbeat, right? I mean, yeah. you have a disproportionately old electorate and just the, the logistics of getting to polls in bad rain or something alone is going to shave off a couple percentage points of people actually showing up or waiting in lines. Um, and it just, it, it, it's, the other thing is that occurred to me was that 
all our lives on election night, you always get these like immediate these 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 emergency petitions of courts to hold the polls open and in 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 various cities so that you know because there are people waiting in line and they should be allowed to vote and blah 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 blah. It dawned on me that, that we could see that for the first time in our lives with Republicans because of all if if three to one Republicans are turning out to vote over Democrats because the Democrats have already banked their votes and the polls close at seven, all of a sudden Republican campaign lawyers who've never made that argument in their lives <laughs> are going to have to yeah. go to court and say, can you please keep the polls open? And Democratic campaign lawyers who've never made the argument, no, nope, no, nope, follow the rules, close the polls, yeah. are going to make that argument. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird situation. Anyway, take it where you well, want. Well, you know, w- one interesting thing about this uh, uh, day of uh, keep the polls open late um, is that while people, I think, think that this is about uh, a panic in presidential elections, my my... Uh, memory tells me that um, a lot of this has to do with um, close Senate races that, uh, for example, Missouri, which has been a, uh, until relatively recently, was like a real battleground uh, every time there was a Senate race. And you would have this panic in St. Louis uh, among Democrats that uh, there were people still online in an overwhelmingly Democratic area who are maybe not going to get to vote. And so you would have to go to court to make sure that they voted. It wasn't that Missouri was going to vote for the, uh, you know, was, was going to matter in the presidential race. It was, you know, whether McCaskill was going to beat whoever, or whether, you know, this one was going to be that one. And, and this is true in other places there. I don't think, you know, I, I, the, those, uh, there was that much, up for grabs in the in the states that really matter um you know there's no uh, senate race in wisconsin there's no senate race in ohio there's no senate race in pennsylvania there was a senate race in north carolina uh you know which is close you have this bizarre these two bizarre senate races in uh, Georgia, where it, it's not really going to matter uh, because neither no one's going to get fifty percent. You have to get fifty percent to, right. to win, and so there are going to be runoffs, and I think in both those elections. Um, and then you have yeah, so so there's no other pressure except for the except for the presidential race uh, going on, and so, so some of those lawyers are local lawyers, you know, all of this right. seems to be going on before with all these petitions to the Supreme court on how to, ma- how to handle late ballots, absentee ballots, late counting, all of that. Um, and it seems to me, uh, that, uh, there's a species of, of bizarre liberal panic going on that the Supreme court, uh, justices seem to be relatively painstakingly trying to d- delineate the differences in the court, in the cases, and the legal situations that are governing uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in particular, finding in one case that Pennsylvania's vote can remain open for three days, but that Wisconsin's can't, and that right. this all has to do with an understanding of the place, manner, and time clause of a constitution and whether these cases are coming federally or locally and all of that. And yet all of this is generating this liberal hysteria that the court is going to hand the election to Trump through various uh, forms of subterfuge uh, because there just seems to be liberal panic. It's interesting that uh, Republicans are the ones who should be panicking. All the data say that Trump's going to lose and that it's it's at least – a more than even shot that Democrats are going to take the Senate. And yet all the hysteria seems to be generated by on the left. 
Yeah, uh, no, it, you're the, the one who persuaded me of this, and I name-checked you in my LA Times column about it, in that, um, I mean, the most telling little piece of data in all this is this Fox News poll about two weeks ago that found that the more liberal you are, the more likely you are to say that your neighbors might vote for Trump and that are lying, right? right? And, and yeah, and so like the very liberal who tend not to live in places where their neighbors are going to vote for Trump, they're the ones who are most terrified that their neighbor is going to vote for Trump. Which, well, let's put it this way: even in New York, let's go back to the one in one in ten. So even in New York City, one in ten people vote voted for Trump, right? I think it was eighty nine to eleven or something in 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 uh, twenty sixteen. Well, you know, maybe so one of your 10 neighbors is going to vote for Trump. Maybe you overemphasize that because it's so startling to you that you know somebody or somebody down the hall has a Trump sticker on the door of their apartment or is walking around with a MAGA hat. There are 100 people on the block who don't wear a MAGA hat. One guy is walking around very defiantly with a MAGA hat. And you're like, oh, my God, there's somebody who's supporting Trump. He must be the, you know, he, mu- he must be the, uh, you know, the... Uh, I, I'm trying, you know, the thing on the head of a spear, you know, the spear's right. point, you know, like he's representing everybody um, because precisely because what you're actually experiencing is the rarity of that, not the, not the omnipresence of it. Um, so there, there is that, 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 that one form of difference makes you think, oh my God, you know, if there's, you know, it's like, if there's one ant, there've got to be a thousand ants, some, you know, in the wall also. Right, I know it's it's it's, and, and we're not saying that MAGA people are ants. <laughs> no, or, I I or anything I knew other that was coming but, out of my uh, coming out of my mouth that that was going the that was going south. I apologize. Well, I want to make that. an analogy to something that David French. But is, that's how they feel. That's how liberals in New York City feel. But yeah, so that's like how I know, David on one of our Dispatch Live things gave this very emotional, was pretty heartrending um, account of the things he's learned about. America having a, an adopted uh, black daughter. And he made this really subtle but really powerful point, which I'm just bringing up as an analogy, is that he says, and it sort of gets to this one in 10 thing, right? He says, imagine, you know, that, you know, first of all, if you're not racist, you tend not to have racist friends, right? So like your actual experience with racism is very low. Because you never see it for the most part, right? You may read about it, but you don't see it in your day-to-day life. But he says, you know, when you have a black daughter and, you know, and you all of a sudden, you see it, but let's just say it's only out of, out of the interactions in a day, it's only one in 10 interactions. But if you have 50 interactions in a day, you're going to feel like there's a lot of racism out there. <laughs> And it can trigger your brain. I mean, like you just think about every time you've had a negative confrontation with a police officer or something, how mad it made you and how long it lingered in your head, right? I mean, imagine if you had just one in a hundred interactions in a week involve some form of anti-Semitism, how much that would consume of your brain. Right. And I think there's a simple, similar thing going on where people in places like New York, you know, the the doorman or, you know, the, their accountant or somebody is all in for Trump. You know, my mom's got lots of, my mom's pretty Trumpy and and it's got lots of Trump friends. Um, and you, you cocoon, you bubble and you're, you're, and if, and if something conflicts with your bubble, it freaks you out too. Yeah. Um, right. 
Right, but in also in a, in a, in a different world, at a different time, in a different frame, when uh, expressions of this sort are not sub rosa, but are but were sort of open and common, um, people had to develop a thicker skin because right. you couldn't really get through the day in a state of perpetual aggrievement, rage, and upset if you were going to have some kind of a productive life. So in the world of, you know, world of sort of, you know, open or genteel or however we want to call it, anti-Semitism, where, you know, my, you know, 80 years ago or something like that, where, you know, pathways were barred to you or you couldn't, there were certain kinds of things you couldn't do. Uh, your It was necessary to get through life with a thicker skin. And today, part of the problem with, understanding how to uh, manage and get through life in the 2020 is that um, not only uh, do we not need a thicker skin because these kinds of public acts of discrimination or hostility or hatred toward minorities or whatever uh, are now, you know, largely frowned upon. Um, But we are encouraged uh, to think of them as though they are offenses and to be offended and to be righteous in our sense of offense, which then prevents the development of the thicker skin that you have to get. If you're any kind of a person, you go, go to high school, you have to deal with people being hostile, being bullied, whatever you have to, you have to be seasoned in dealing with sort of like everyday minor, nothing adversity to make a good showing for yourself and make a good life for yourself. And, and we are so, we are denying like our children and people like that much that ability somehow to develop that thicker skin that people used to have. That's not necessarily, it's a bad thing because uh, there's no way to change human nature so that people aren't, mistreated by other people some of the time it's just the way things are but it's a it's a it's it's an interesting problem and it does create this notion that if you're offended by trump and he gives you offense and then there is a person who supports him that person deserves your feeling you, you are right to feel offended by that person as trump's representative and also because if you think that you hate Trump because he supposedly hates you and wants to oppress you, this person is in small bore, you know, some kind of synecdoche for Trump. So, uh, yeah, so it's all accentuated and exaggerated. Whereas I think, as I we've talked about this many times, that, you know, conservatives over time, uh, less and less now, but it was for a long time, you know, we had to be bilingual, right? We had to sort of right. talk liberal and we had to talk conservative. We had to be part of both cultures uh the creation of silos and social media and talk radio and the rise of a more partisan politics and all of this makes this less and less the case uh for the right but um but you know uh, you were able to sort of navigate your way through both and people just seem to have much less of an ability or capacity to navigate their way through the thickets of ideas and beliefs that they don't share yeah no i agree i mean that's i mean that was one of the great advantages of growing up in New York City is that if you had a, you know, and both of us had, to put it mildly, we had conservative uh, parents of some um, intellectual rigor. 
And, um, um, and so it was kind of like speaking, you know, a different language at home. And then you go out and, you know, I went to Rodolf Sholem day school and you spoke a different language at school. And, um, and it, that sort of bilingualism really helped you be, I mean, let's, there's a lot, there's, there's some evidence that conservatives are much better, or at least they used to be much better at, um, passing ideological Turing tests. You know, if, if like, if I gave you a test and said, what would the liberal, what would the liberal argument be about these 10 situations? You would probably score a hundred on it because you just understand, you've heard their arguments and you know, they're liberals. When they take these kinds of tests, they often, um, end up doing very, very poorly because they, they have sort of have the cartoon villain understanding of what our motivations mm-hmm. are. And so it's yeah. like, you know, because they're racist, because they're racist, because they're racist yeah. on every answer. And, yeah. um, and I think that, you know, one of the ways, the best ways to sort of combat the problem of this kind of bubble thinking is thinking about the institutions that get people out of their bubbles. And that's why I want to talk to you about donors trust. Each year, Sally invests in numerous charities with her finances and time. Now, thanks to a recent property sale, she also has the resources to support these charities long term. She could have written personal checks to accomplish her charitable goals, but instead she opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, she knew she would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust works with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to Donors Trust dot org slash dingo for their six reasons to use a donor advised fund that's donors trust dot org slash dingo we thank donors trust for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant I, let's do a little a little rank more not, not rank punditry about that polls, wasn't really rank punditry before that was no, actually know, we, we started going to rank punditry and then it got very high flown and highfalutin and i agree so let's yeah. um let's 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 bring it down to earth maybe not eye level but maybe <laughs> lap level uh what do you think is going to happen with jeffrey tubin <laughs> i uh, I, I honestly, I honestly don't know. Look, Jonah, I, I have, I have not uh, talked about this very much because I, I've known Jeff Tubin most of my life. I went to high school with Jeff Tubin. We worked on the school paper together. Um, then, in, in a disgraceful uh, act of, uh, of 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 repulsive liberal uh, repellent behavior, he then spent several years trying to throw my brother-in-law Elliot Abrams into jail, working for Lawrence Walsh on the Iran Contra matter. Elliot, who was a an official in the Reagan administration, uh, one of the finest public servants um, of our time, and somebody who was uh, uniquely and unjustly uh, tormented by w- Lawrence Walsh and Jeff Tubin. So I, 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 I know him. We were frenemies. I loathe his behavior. I like some of his books. I have very complicated feelings about him. Um, uh, 
uh, if um, if he should find his career in tatters for the rest of his life, given what he put my late sister through in the course of Elliot's uh, uh, El- the abuse of Elliot by the Walsh office, then I would echo uh, Link- uh, Lincoln's quote quotation of the Bible that the ways of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. Um, <laughs> I, I tend not to think that such justice is meted out uh, that frequently, and so um, I, I sort of assume that uh, he will be back in in, in some some form. So uh, we don't we don't have to um, linger. Uh, um, it's so hard to talk about this without going for the the cheap double entendre rather than the really. Oh, go. Go rich for it. double entendre. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh uh it feels to me like in another time the jokes would have lasted longer. Um, but they kind of feel old and they also and I, I think maybe part of it is because of the the acceleration of the news cycle generally, right? Things feel old much more quickly. Than they used to. I mean, it feels like a million years ago that the president of the United States was diagnosed with COVID. Um, but there's also this, this sense that like it, it, the culture's gotten to the place where we're, it, it's supposed to be a bad thing to think harshly of uh, somebody um, praying to own on uh during a zoom call um because hey you know everybody does it no they they don't do that and um um and it seems like there was there was a lot of response to it that like was oh you prudes why are you making a big deal about this and it seems to me like this is a pretty easy bright line to draw in, in in daily life i i i there there is Something uniquely humiliating about the idea of being discovered uh, in the midst of the act of self-pleasure that I think probably dates back to the cavemen and that we we will simply not progress out of. Uh, and, you know, it, uh, fundamentally, it goes to the ultimate point that, uh, you know, if you're an 11 year old boy and you or whatever, an 11 year old and you don't really have an outlet, you don't have an outlet, even though it would be wildly humiliating to be caught at it. But if you're a man with a wife, then you don't have to do it, really. And and if you're, you know, and if you're uh, and uh, if you're a man of some note and position, uh, you might not have to do it anyway, even if your wife doesn't want to do it with you or if you're, you know, and so there is something about this. It's very gut. It's a very mm-hmm. gut thing that that everyone went, oh, my yeah. God, you know, like that. And, and um you know, uh, disgust is, there's all this, you know, social science on disgust and really in other cultures, people don't have disgust about this. They don't have disgust about that. I kind of suspect that this is one of these weird things that everybody has some kind of bizarre elemental disgust, not that people, that everybody didn't do it or everybody hasn't done it or something like that, but that, you know, 
everybody knows you're not supposed to get caught. Everybody knows you're supposed to lock the door or you're supposed to, you know, that you don't want to get caught. And so he got caught in the worst possible way that a human being can get caught. And the very fact that he was somebody who two years earlier had wagged his finger at, at Brett Kavanaugh. Had he not wagged his finger at Brett Kavanaugh, maybe this would have been a little different. Had he not been caught out uh, in a public scandal involving uh, a, a, a girlfriend uh, whom he had impregnated and sought to force her to get an abortion and then denied his paternity of the child that, that, she, that she bore, some of this wouldn't have happened. He has not behaved himself appropriately for somebody who apparently should have more compassion for people and their weaknesses and their their own foibles, let's say. Yeah, I mean, if, if the fact pattern were him, someone sneaking in and putting a secret camera in his house, and he, <laughs> right. that'd be one thing. But it's just sort of like, you know, oh, that was a really great discussion, David Remnick. You know, um, you know, uh, I need a ten minute break. And then, I mean, it's just it's a different thing, and I, I kind of resent being told I can't laugh at it. Um, but that's just that's just me. Um, well, no, you have to. First of all, you have to be able to. Let, second of all, I, you know, I, I didn't suspend him from his two jobs. Right. Like I don't. It's none of my business. It's none of my business what he did on a Zoom call, it, it, but it was apparently the New Yorker's business and it was CNN's business, and uh, and if they determine that you know if the if if David Remnick, the New Yorker, determines that enough people saw him uh, in Medias race that uh, that uh, he cannot uh, function as a. Uh, as a, a worthy employee uh, in a workplace in which he has to have, you know, comradeship with other people. Uh, that's also not my business. Um, nobody. That's why, as I say, like, uh, you know, if Remnick said, look, I mean, it was, Ooh boy, that was terrible, but you know, he's one of our favorite people and we're not going to, we're not going to throw him over the side because he made one mistake. That is not what Remnick said. That is yeah. not what the New Yorker has done, uh, as far as I can tell. So um, that's between them. You know, you should laugh at it. <laughs> you should make as much fun of it as you possibly can, um, because well, I, he. I, I've paid my because he is a jerk. <laughs> he is a jerk. He always was a jerk, and he is a jerk. He was jerky to your mother. He was jerky to my brother-in-law. He can drop dead and fall out a window. I mean that that you want you want to he tortured my sister, and if he fell out a window, that would be fine with me. And by the way, he's somebody, and he's somebody that if I I don't know after this after this podcast if this will be the case, um, but you know if I see him, we have perfectly uh, perfectly friendly social relations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, if I were hit by a car in front of him, he would also be happy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know, because I was better in the play than the musicals in high school than he was or something like that. <laughs> Does he ever know. say to you, my eyes are up here, John? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, slightly more serious subject. I. All right. So I got a lot of grief from a lot of people for. Not like 
uh, I'm going to do this in two phases. One, I'm still struggling to understand exactly what the scandal of the of the Joe Biden, Hunter Biden business deal thing is. I'm not saying that there isn't one. I think we knew already that Hunter was corrupt. But I, you keep hearing, you know, particularly on Twitter, particularly amplified by sort of the, the Tucker and, and, and GOP caucus, these claims that I can't find evidence have been proven. Right. Um, so so there keep, are two, right? You have okay. to tease them out. There are two separate tracks. There is the Ukraine track, and then there is the China track. And right. I know the Ukraine s- track. I know the Okay, I, so, they're, so they're, they're separated in time. The Ukraine track took place while, while Biden was vice president. Uh, it was uh, the hunger to find out about stuff in Ukraine was, of course, the source, uh, was the thing that led to Trump's impeachment. Um, and that that's still bubbling and percolating. And you mentioned Burisma and thousands of people get crazy and say Burisma, Burisma, you know, and if you didn't understand it back then, you're not going to understand it now. And it's, it, it involves a bank shot. The bank shot is Biden went to Ukraine and, uh, insisted on the firing of a pro of a corruption prosecutor, uh, who, the West believed was not prosecuting corruption and his dismissal was his, his dismissal was necessary to make it possible for Ukraine to get Western aid because he was hiding mistakes. According to the Biden is corrupt class, that's what was all a dodge and a scam that he actually wanted to fire the prosecutor because the prosecutor was going to go after Hunter and Burisma and so he, in the guise of being an anti-corruption person, was in fact a corruption person. That is the theory. Uh, it is very convoluted, and I, you know, I have no idea. I assume, I'm sorry to say, that I don't think it's true, because I don't think that the entire West would believe that Victor Shokin was, uh, you know, was a bad guy, but he was actually secretly a good guy. But what do I know, right? So there, that's. And that, right, of and course, Biden was acting on policy that was already set by the Obama administration yeah. and in concert yeah, and he with flew the in. And he's and not, it wasn't, yeah, and he wasn't a power. Look, I, 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 granted, he was the vice president. So, oh, my God. So, you know, like he had no power. Right. Biden had no power. I, I gather uh, there is a 13,000 word piece in The New Yorker that is an excerpt from Obama's memoir about the Affordable Care Act. Right, which is like a main subject of Biden's campaign, how he helped pass the Affordable Care Act, in which Biden is mentioned once by <laughs> Obama in thirteen thousand words. So, vice presidents have no have no real power. I mean, sometimes they do, like Cheney, but I mean, there's no there's no. So he sort of flew in to pretend at power while while uh, you know sort of fulfilling American foreign policy goals. Uh, coming in as a kind of Bigfoot, but not that he was, you know, he had gone into the State Department and said, we got to get this guy Shokin out. Like the the m- most obvious thing is that he never heard of Shokin. He didn't know who Shokin was. They handed him a briefing book on Shokin. He went in and said to uh, the head of, you know, the Ukrainian prime minister, get rid of Shokin. And that was the story, right? So that's the Ukraine part. The part we're talking about now and that everybody is going crazy about is the China part, which happens after 
Biden is out of office. Biden is now a private citizen. It's 2017. And Hunter and his father are apparently trying to get business in China. And they engage, uh, they are somehow get mixed up with Tony Bobolinsky, who is the guy who is the whistleblower, right? Uh, who is, uh, we, keep, we hear from the pro-Bobolinsky forces that he is a Navy veteran and an entrepreneur. He is a porn merchant. He ran a business called Jagosity that did porn in Asia that was sold to another porn business called Adult Friend Finder. That's who Tony One of Jeffrey Tubin's favorite sites, I should say. So, yeah. so what, what's important about this is that in another set of circumstances, you would say, my God, look at the company that Hunter Biden keeps. This guy mm-hmm. he's trying to get uh, go, go into business with in China is like a porn guy. He's the son of the vice president. You know, he's like a he's like trying to make international deals, and the best he can do is 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 a is a is a porn guy. Like that's crazy. What the hell is going on here? Um, so that that is the Tony Bobolinsky story, and he says that uh, he said makes various allegations that Hunter wanted money, and that and that uh, Hunter was going to get money from the Chinese, and so was his uncle, and that they were reserving money for Biden, and that he knows this based on you know hints and and penumbras and emanations from emails. Two things that we know: one of which is he apparently had a meeting with Biden, and Biden said, "Take care of my family," and the other is that. There was an email in which somebody said reserve 10% for the big guy. And in the end, apparently, no business deal was made. Right. Which, of course, is kind of necessary for the conspiracy to have been concluded successfully is that money changed hands and got into Joe Biden's pocket. I think it's very easy to read the Joe Biden meeting with Bobolinsky and the at the Beverly Hill Wilshire or the Beverly Hilton or wherever the hell it was in Los Angeles, where he says, take care of my family, which is... I got a I got a ne'er do well son who's been had a lot of trouble and uh, and and uh, don't screw around with him. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, take care of my family. Don't you do anything? You know, that's just as plausible as arrange for me to get a lot of money, if not more plausible. So this sort of I mean that tracks pretty much with where I am on all of this. But every time I try to parse this, um, the I'm, you know, I'm told that Biden committed a crime and that he should go to jail. And I can't find the evidence of the crime. Um, he was a private citizen. He wasn't influence peddling. Um, there was no deal. As you've pointed out on the commentary podcast, there are lots of people in kleptocratic, crappy, corrupt regimes who think that having access to the former vice president is this major business coup. When in reality, it's 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 like useless. And um, I mean, who is Biden supposed to be lobbying inside the Trump administration to get you know sweetheart deals? And um, and and so so, but the whataboutism problem I really have is is, is that yes, I think it is now proven, at least to my satisfaction, that. Biden lied when he said, I've never talked about business with my kid. And this, if you watch you know, large amounts of Fox News, that is an enormous scandal, right? You know, that was, someone was making the case about that on the special report I was on last night. And I, how you can think that's an enormous scandal, I think it's bad, fine. 
But if you're supporting Trump, who's like literally doing shady deals with foreign regimes right now, and he's the president of the United States, and he certainly did shady deals with foreign regimes prior to becoming when he was a private citizen, and he's, I think reasonable people can agree he's lied about it. I don't understand what objective standard people are trying to imply that says that we should be outraged by Biden. And I, 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 my gather, I mean, you can respond to that if you want, but my gather, you largely agree with that. What I want to get to is, you know, I have more and more interest in the McCarthy era than I used to. Um, and uh, you go back and you read the way different conservatives responded to Joe McCarthy and the McCarthy era and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's the famous Irving Crystal essay in Commentary Magazine. And, and there's a lot more nuance back then than people really appreciate. But I kind of have this newfound sympathy for people who were like, wait a second, what the hell, are, you know, is Joe McCarthy talking about? Um, and being ostracized or attacked for like not being more worked up about the communist dentist at some army base and that kind of thing. And this Biden hysteria, there's this thing going on out there that this has to be the silver bullet that ends, you know, Biden's candidacy. And it's not going to be. And it's freaking people out. I mean, you talked about liberal panic earlier. There's this right wing panic that, oh, my God, if, if the media just covered this seriously, Biden would be toast. And I think the media should cover it seriously because it would show that it's really kind of a BS right. scandal. Um, anyway. Right. We're, I, you OK, know so I think about? we. I think we have liberal panic and conservative panic crashing into each other. So the story comes out, there's a laptop. The laptop has this stuff on it. Uh, the story about how the laptop got public is fishy. And I'm sorry it's fishy, but it is fishy. I don't really believe it. Seems fishy to me. Whatever. But there's a laptop. It's got emails on it. The emails are suggestive of uh, of like uh, underhanded behavior, um, and uh, social media and uh, the liberal consensus on Twitter says, "Stuff it in the garbage can. Don't report on it. Don't write about it. The provenance is bad. The provenance of the story is bad, and it's it could be a Russian disinformation plot." Um, this is liberal panic. This is, oh my God, I'm Charlie Brown. The football is back. Lucy is holding the football. The football is a news story about democratic presidential candidacies and corruption. I'm going to run at it. She's going to pull the football away. We're going to lose the election. Trump is going to win again. And I will be one of the active forces that made that happen. So the thing to do is for the story to be buried. As you say, actually publishing the story would have, I think, negated the story. Or it would have been so, um, A, hard to follow, and B, not determinative that Biden really did anything wrong, but just more stuff about how uh, you know his 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 son. He's yet another prominent politician with a with a with a ne'er do well screwed up kid, uh, as has existed from time immemorial. So you have the liberal panic, which is we can't do anything to recreate the conditions 
in which we helped drive Hillary Clinton's negative so high that she lost the 2016 election. And then you have conservatives who are like, aha, you see the liberals are now suppressing the story. And this proves that what they're going to do is get Biden elected through their suppression of this story. And so they're both kind of like it's the eternal golden braid. They're 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 <laughs> they're bouncing and 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 refracting off each other. And uh, and I, you know uh, I think what we're seeing here is the creation of a narrative about Biden that should he win will become a preoccupying fact on the right for years. It will be the new white water, the Biden corruption. Yeah. The Biden corruption, the Biden corruption, the Biden corruption. And we are going to, you are going to see stories that are convoluted in ways that you will never, ever be. You're going to have Ukrainian names that you will never be able to pronounce and seven of them in one paragraph. And it will drive you totally stark raving mad. No, Um, I think that's right. And, 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 and that's how I already kind of feel about this is that it's so hard to because people's emotions are so caught up in this. I mean, I got an enormous amount of angry email after last night because I didn't when I was on special report, I didn't I, I, I think the media cover up of the story is stupid. The Twitter and social media stuff about it, about The New York Post was stupid. But I also don't think that this is like this obvious, you know, headshot against Joe Biden when there was no deal. And by the standards of how Trump operates, this is a true nothing burger from what we know right now. Um, and I love the idea that Bobulinski, Bobulinski, whatever his name is, you know, people are simultaneously saying that Hunter Biden is easily the most corrupt person in American history. He is a vile pond dweller, blah, 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 blah. And this guy who was so eager to go into business with him <laughs> is yeah. this incredibly morally upstanding person. I mean, it's like, no, birds of a feather tend to flock together. But no, he's he's like the he is like the Michael Avenatti of the right. Yeah. Or the Michael. Cohen. Right. So Michael Avenatti surfaces. Right. But Michael Avenatti surfaces out of nowhere, starts suing Trump and doing this. And suddenly everybody on the right loves right. Michael, Michael Avenatti. And then it turns out that there's a lot of stuff in Avenatti that you don't really, you know, you, you don't want, you don't want, you know, you, this was not a rock that you wanted to turn over. And I, I, I'm not saying that, that Bobulinski is Michael Avenatti. I'm saying that as a figure, yeah. when no, partisans embrace a whistleblower or somebody on their side, um, simply because they like what, what they say without doing due diligence on whether or not you really want to be, you know, promoting such a person, you know, reticence, reticence is, is all, um, by the way, as a late hit, this was a disaster. It came too late. This is part of the thing that by the time the story surfaced, 10 million people had already voted. So, you know, or something like that. We're now at 75 million people having already voted. If you were going to do this late hit, and apparently this laptop has been around for months and months and months and months, it shows a kind of incompetence on whoever decided to play this game because they really needed to do it in September or in August or something like that. And they didn't. And I don't really understand why they didn't or why, why it didn't happen that way. But there, there we are. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I kind of just want to just sort of write about dogs and 19th century politics for the next five days because it's so hard to cut through 
you know, to get some signal out of all the noise. And, you know, and that- there's no point. There's no point in writing about anything else, really, if you think about it, because in the absence of an unanticipated event that is by definition unanticipatable over the next five days, the election is over. I mean, uh, people, there, there's not going to be anything that is going to push people one way or the other at this point. More than, you know, somewhere around 50% of the electorate has already voted. Uh, it would have to be such a huge to, to shift, to actually make a tectonic shift in the race. The revelation would have to be colossal and enormous. Uh, there are almost no undecideds, according to the polling. And so, um, and so what is going to happen on Tuesday is going to happen absent uh, a meteorological event, right? I mean, absent, mm-hmm. absent some bizarre thing where, you know, half of Texas is washed away in, right. you know, in, a, in a hurricane and therefore no one in, no one in Trump-friendly precincts can get to the polls and, and, and Biden wins Texas that way. And if Biden wins Texas, he wins the election going away anyway so it uh, you know it's the second largest state in the country so that that so absent that so that's unanticipatable also we are it's it's over like we are now in the end game the end game started you know six or seven days ago and is gonna flow on until tuesday so what we can talk about is what we think it means yeah it's sort of like trump took strontium 90 and he doesn't know it yet right you know but (laughs) my point about like separating the signal from the noise i think you know one of the things that you can do is sort of go back to basics and and really recommit to the stuff that's really important. And that's why I want to talk about the Acton line. Acton line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, which is dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Act in Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish but also that markets can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. So to describe to Acton Line, visit Acton, that's A-C-T-O-N, like action without the I, acton.org slash dingo. Or just search Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash dingo to subscribe. We thank Acton Line for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so I've, 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 I've kept you here for a while, John, and we got to actually do a glop later today, and I got to write a column. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do some, uh, uh, some rapid-fire lightning round questions. Okay. Um, I actually know the answer to this one, but I did raise it on a previous podcast, and I said, that I needed to ask you about it, but then I kind of <laughs> okay. looked it up. But anyway, I'll, okay. I'll get your definitive take. Is okay. squirrel kosher? No. Um, what was Bel- what what was Telly Savalas's? These are all questions that came over yeah. from Twitter, by the way. Okay. What was Telly Savalas's best role? 
I, 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 I got to go with Kojak, but first season Kojak. After that, Kojak turned into a different character and was bad. Um, sort of like late Star Trek, the Romulans kind of lost their way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I got to say, just because it, it sticks out in my head, I did like him as the nuclear terrorist in the Poseidon Adventure sequel. Um, that, he, that was that was that was good. Although he was basically playing Kojak from the later seasons as a nuclear terrorist, which is one of the reasons why, you know, that was one hell of a sequel beyond the Poseidon Adventure. It really, it was, it really beyond. was. And I, I really kind of like the idea of the producers sitting him down and saying, "Telly, Booby, here's what we're thinking: you play Kojak, but as a <laughs> nuclear terrorist." Um, I mean, I just think that would be really interesting kind of pitch. Um, and, uh, and also his role as the psycho in the dirty dozen is kind of interesting. Oh, he was great in the dirty dozen. There's actually a, that you want to get incredibly obscure. There is a, there is a movie, um, called, uh, uh, I had a ball, uh, with Glenn Ford and Hope Lang, uh, sort of like a kind of a, a sex caper comedy set in the South of France in the early sixties in which he plays a very uh, sophisticated Frenchman. And he is great in that too, by the way, oddly enough, when he was still an actor and before he became sort of like the, you know, caricature of his character that he became once he became a big star. I'm, um, I'm confused why this is a question here, but um, maybe it's some inside joke that I don't get. But um, someone asked, is Potter, P-O-D-D-E-R hyphen Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z, the correct pronunciation of your last name? That, that would be incorrect. The correct pronunciation of my last name is Podhoretz. Um, now, I will tell you that I have that uh, this name is so complicated and, and is often mispronounced as Potteritz that there was a branch of the family that gave up and I have a second cousin who calls himself Potteritz, Jim Potteritz, who actually hmm. uh, like makes uh, 30, he makes those ESPN 30 on 30 documentaries and stuff like that. Um, so there is, there, there are Potteritzes and there are Podhoritzes, but there is no Potterhertz. Okay. I'm, I, I, I'm happy to say. It's good to know. Um, uh, what are your most missed old time New York city diners or restaurants. Uh, wow. That's a tough one. That that's, a, that's almost, that, that, we should that, carry that, that as a, this could be that like is a an great spin off onto Glop, right? You know, like where yes, yes. Fonz shows up on Mork and Mindy. We talk about this on Glop, but, um, yeah, but that, that is a fantastic question. I will say that, um, there was a restaurant an Italian restaurant, neighborhood Italian restaurant in the, uh, uh in the East sixties called Bravo Gianni that had the best fettuccine Alfredo I've ever had. It was there for like 40 years. And it was like a place that as you went over time, you know, the clientele got older and older and older and older. And then finally, you know, when most of it died, the restaurant closed. Um, But uh, that, that was a, that was a a pretty great, like unassuming uh, place. You know, the place I miss from our old neighborhood is Gitlet's but um oh, it wasn't great Gitlitz. it was just like going yeah. home you know um yeah um, yeah okay last last one of these questions what is your secret because if and, and, and i think this is right i mean 
I would never have bet you could have lasted this long not tweeting. Yes. But you've managed to do it, and yet you're still on Twitter. I mean, you are, I, I'm not trying to traffic in any stereotypes, yes. but you, you are an argumentative person from an argumentative family, from an argumentative culture. And um, it seems to be, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean it's true. It's yes. like, you know, you, you get five yeah. Jews together and you get seven opinions. Yeah. Um, and you like joining the fray. How is it that you have managed to, re to resist tweeting while still being on Twitter? Okay, well, first of all, by the way, my, my, my longtime Twitter account, uh, which has been dormant since March of 2019, got hacked about a month ago and has, has disappeared. And Twitter, like, it, someone changed the picture. I couldn't get into it. And then Twitter blocked me and said that I was, I was not myself and that I was trying to get into an account. And sort of like what happened to Iowa Hawk, if anybody thought yeah. we were talking about really getting into the weeds here. Um, and so it's gone. Like that account, I had, 100, I had 140,000 followers so that, you know, if I ever saw, sell another book, like I'm going to really miss those followers because that's something you can use to like get a better advance. Um, but it's gone and I've had to reconstitute it with uh, sort of like with another kind of shadow account uh, in which I had have to use a, a, a VPN and a, and, and a, and a weird blah and a weird um, browser because the Twitter knows that I'm the bad person who is trying to get into my own account. You don't want to even want to know. So I decided that I was not going to tweet anymore. And I will tell you this, it's sort of like quitting smoking or, you know, I, I, I developed, um, sadly, I have type 2 diabetes, so it's like when they tell you you can't eat sugar anymore, it's, in some ways, it's easier to do nothing. Mm -hmm. In other words, to, if you're going to quit smoking, you're never going to smoke a, a cigarette again. You're not going to smoke one cigarette a day or two, because if you're like me, then you'll smoke a pack. You right. can't smoke one. And if you're going to eat sugar, you're going to eat a box of Entenmann's donuts. So I'm not going to eat sugar anymore. And that's how I dealt with Twitter. It was like, I'm not tweeting anymore, and that's the end of it. And as long as it can be totally, you know, you can't do this with food, you can't do it with breathing, you can't do it with a lot of, when people say, you know, do it in moderation, some people really don't have moderation in them, and I'm one of them. And so, uh, you know, complete um, separation was yeah, necessary but, that's the thing, but I, like, I, I, yeah. I mean John, I, I'm totally with you you know I mean I, I've put on a bunch of that's I've for me on, that's not for other people no 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 like the, yeah. like the only way that the the low carb thing worked for me when I lost all that weight a while ago was to just go all in right and like yeah the easiest potato chip to say no to is the first one I get that point right um yeah. but if I'm saying no to potato chips I'm not like going through the supermarket, popping open the bags, smelling deep of the potato chips. You, you're yeah. on Twitter. You read Twitter. I mean, like, that's my problem right. with Twitter is that people say things that I, I want to like I, push back on. I, I read Twitter to understand uh, the prevailing uh, consensus in, in, in my profession and my industry and where stories are going. And that's really why I read Twitter. In the early going, when I was very active on Twitter and it was fun, and there was a you have to you have to admit there was a point around 2015, late 2015, 
I would say when Twitter stopped being fun. Yeah, no, I agree. When I started getting hit with anti-Semitic sludge and when sort of the 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 partisan the the nature of the Trump partisan combat of all this just drove it down. When it was fun, there were these fun things about it. it. And and if you were good, if you were good at making jokes and good at cracking one-liners, and there were the, you know, it was fun. And then it really stopped being fun. And then it was just fighting or just, you know, like letting your it out or something like that. And and there was a point at which I thought, you know what, this this was good for my career. It was fun. I really enjoyed it for a long time. It got to the point where, and I, I wonder this for a lot of people, uh, where the cost-benefit analysis is totally skewed in a dangerous direction. That mm-hmm. you can do 100,000 tweets that are totally fine and one that will destroy you and, 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 and will destroy you utterly and will destroy your career, will get you fired. And, you know, it's like Jeff Tubin. He just, can do 100,000 Zoom calls. <laughs> And one goes awry, or hundred or a hundred thousand onanistic acts, and one goes awry. Exactly which, right. Yeah, 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 right. But I mean, I'm just saying, like you know, if you think about it, the 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 risk reward ratio is 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 terrible. It's true. Uh, and so there's no one tweet that you one has ever done that made that you know would be worth you know, would be worth losing, you know, your livelihood over or your reputation or something. And it can happen like that. And the more well-known you are, the more people are gunning for you just as a, Mm -hmm. just as a matter of course. And so, and so it just seemed to me like it was just not, not worth it. All right. So I I think we should wrap it up, but uh, very, very quickly, what do you think happened to the only copies of the uh, the devastating documents that that Tucker Carlson put in the mail, or FedEx. You know, or UBS. I think I think like Vince from the in-laws, he had them in the jacket, uh, but he took the jacket to get Martinized. And those photos of the of the tsetse flies with brown babies in their beaks that have now since been outlawed by the Guacamole Act of 1915. Those photos would have won Vince a Pulitzer Prize, but they were in that jacket and they got martinized. And and that's what happened to, I think Tucker took his jacket to get martinized. Right, we'll leave it there. And he could have won the Pulitzer <laughs> Prize with them. Uh, John Hortz, thank you so much for being on. I'm going to see you in a, uh, about three hours to do a yep. glop. Um, and people who don't know, we do this, we do a glop thing. It's called... Glop, because for a very long time we couldn't come up with a name for it, and it's mostly about popular culture. And so we called it Glop Culture because it's our initials um, plus a small O in there. And that's that. that, that, <laughs> that. And people should listen to your now daily commentary podcast, which is Thank you. always informative. Um, and uh, um, I, 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 I listen. What is the thing that Martin Short says in the big picture? He, I, I read almost all of the scripts all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> um, I listen to you know if people don't know that if people don't the, the, the big picture is a is a not very good movie about Hollywood and a young director in Hollywood in which Martin Short has a part as an agent who's fantastic that is one of the greatest like side performances in a movie ever given and uh speaking as somebody who was actually married to a talent agent uh, who is nothing like that? Uh, it is. It is. It is. It is particularly stunning if you want to look it up. It's uh, uh, because that is just yeah dazzling. I've read. Yeah, I read almost all of your script, almost all the way through. 
Right. And I, yeah. you, you do five podcasts a week. Yes. I got things I got to do, but I, um, when I need that's to the same with a, this, it's same yeah, with this. Yeah. You do two or you do two or three a week. And I, yeah, no, I, it's I, hard. I, think I, I mean, get through, I get through two probably I would yeah. say, uh, um, for the most and, part. Uh, no, I, I like, I don't understand. I, I don't, I, I don't begrudge you not listening to my solo monologue. Uh, I've, I've listened podcast. to those too. I enjoy those also. Yeah. I enjoy so. those. There's nothing I don't enjoy. Um, and with that, thank you, John Bedortz. Um, I'll see you in a little <laughs> bit and, uh, please come on again. Thank you. I will. Okay. Uh, John has, uh, has left and he was a real mensch for doing that for me at last minute. We had some um scheduling things fall through and wanted john on for a long time well, i wanted him back on for a long time and and uh he was willing to oblige and indulge me and um and you should listen by the way you should listen to the clock particularly if you're just like sick of the punditry because we we try to do very little of it i mean every now and then we we do get into it a bit but usually we try to just talk about movies and literature and culture and complaints about this that and the other thing and um, and it's a good, good time. Um, and it, you know, what people like about it is they generally think it sounds like how we would talk if we were sitting, um, you know, at a bar or at lunch together. And often it's like that, but some of the, you know, some of the caddy gossip stuff we do try to keep out of the podcast, but you know, I'll let listeners make their own judgments. Anyway, uh, please go check out what's next event.com. Um, we think it's going to be a, a, a really successful, great, um, conference. And personally, I hope it's our last virtual conference. I'm, I'm, uh, hoping that we can start doing these things in person, not just in Washington, but around the country. Um, it'd be great to get out there. Maybe we'll get that vaccine and that'll be possible. But regardless, we think this is an important enough thing that it's worth doing even by zoom. So go to what's next to check out, um, uh, the ever increasing itinerary or agenda for the thing. You know, we're, we're, we don't want to announce people, some of the people until they're absolutely locked in about the one and the where's and, and all the rest, but it's really shaping up to be something great. And, uh, and thanks again for listening. And I will do the solo remnant tomorrow. And then we haven't quite figured out what we're going to do because normally we record these things on Tuesdays and recording it on election day seems kind of weird. So if you have suggestions for stuff, you know, a guest or a topic that's maybe not about politics um, for the next episode, uh, that would be great, even though the problem is it will then come out the day after the election and, and conceivably will everyone will want to talk about what happened and then who knows. It's, it's, it's a conundrum, but we'll figure it out. Uh, regardless, thanks again to John Padoritz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the reviews at iTunes and elsewhere. We really appreciate it. And thanks for promoting the podcast on the Twitters. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.